Welcome back to Chapter 2 of uh, White Power by George Lincoln Rockwell. This is Chapter 2, titled Spiritual Syphilis. The guy at the door of the Nazi headquarters was living the embodiment of the national suicide I've set forth in Chapter 1. He seemed young, but you couldn't be sure because he was wearing a redded... He was wearing a matted red beard. He wasn't wearing clothes, just a raggedy blanket and sandals. Shades covered his eyes, unkempt hair covered much of the rest of his face. Our duty officer, sharply uniformed in well-pressed khakis, jump boots and sidearm, just stood there, looking, bug-eyed in amazement. This apparition, his head sort of bobbing and drolling to some rhythm while he snapped his fingers, looked the duty officer up and down. What's with you Nazi cats, he said. The duty officer stared. Say, man. What, will, will that thing shoot? The man in the blanket tried again, pointing a finger with inch-long dirty nails at the duty officer's forty-five. Certainly, said the duty officer, finally getting over his first shock. What can we do for you? I want to join, man. Like I want to be a Nazi. Want to gas me a Jew. I want to sign up. Where's this Rockwell cat? I was in a back room, printing. I had to do much of it myself back then. I heard all this going on, although I didn't like to let visitors see me covered with printer's ink, I couldn't resist coming out to see what was at the door. He wants to join, sir, the duty officer said to me, still flabbergasted. I couldn't resist talking to this thing from outer space. I have often found that I learned most, not from books and literature, but from people and events themselves. And this guy looked hot like a whole encyclopedia of everything degenerate. I invited him in. We talked. He couldn't stay still but he kept moving around the room, seeming to float a few inches above the floor. I later learned he was on pills and narcotics. After an hour or so of talking, he began to change a bit. He appeared unsure of himself in the presence of something he'd never experienced before. Men who were sure of themselves and had a purpose. A look of unbelieving wonder come over his blue eyes, even though the shades, as I, even through the shades as I talked to him, of what we really were and why he had given up everything of fun in life to fight for our nation and white race. Little by little, I began to get the story out of him. He was only 17 years old and had lived an entire lifetime. He'd done everything, tried all kicks and was already bored to death with an empty life. He'd made a mistress out of his art teacher. He'd run a dead... He'd run a den of degeneracy and debauchery called Mule's Pad, where the local beats and wild crowds did anything, including enjoy dope. He'd shot a man, gotten off, and lived as fast and hard as he could find until finally he contemplated suicide and utter despair of finding anything worth doing any more. All this at seventeen. Before he committed suicide, he told me he decided to come see the Nazi cats, figuring it might be one last kick. What he found unexpectedly was that was what every human being needs to survive this life. A purpose. Something which gives life more meaning than a constant search for more pleasure and kicks. He actually convinced me he wanted to stay he wanted to try to be a stormtrooper. As a matter of policy, whenever I hear that, as I do every day, I do all I can to discourage the applicant. We want no dabblers, but hard but dedicated, fanatical fighters who will stick through hell itself. With this crazy character, I went even further. I made fun of him. I told him he'd never make it and he'd, that we'd run him off the first day. He rose to the challenge. You name it and I'll make it, he said. Strangely enough, I could sense a fiercely burning will behind these words. I told him he couldn't come up to try life as a Nazi stormtrooper until he was 18. 
he left, vowing to return in a few months. He did return without the beat near get-up. He turned out to be a blonde, young Viking, built for combat. We poured it to him. There was no place left inside for him to sleep, so he was assigned to a wrecked car out back. It was still winter and cold, but the kid moved into the wrecked car with a car couple of blankets. We put him to work, cleaning the toilets and yard. He worked. Spring came and then a broiling summer. He was still in the wrecked car, eaten alive by mosquitoes. I tried him on the printing press and never saw such a bear for work. He was all dried out of booze, off the pills and dope, exercising plenty and showing every sign of making it. He accomplished dozens of dangerous missions against the SNCC, NAACP, communists and peace creeps. He accompanied me to many a fight and many a jail. Within 11 months, faster than most before, anybody before or since, the kid became an officer in the stormtroop section and led more successful operations against the enemy than any single party officer with one possible exception. An example of the work of this kid was the time the black agitators were trying to unseat the white Mississippi delegation and our own black-faced delegation. The, since our, and our own black-faced delegation sent the black agitators backing, back to Mississippi as laughingstocks. My ex-beatnik managed to race onto the floor of Congress on opening day in blackface with top hat, loincloth and cigar, shouting, As the Mississippi delegation, and I demands my seat. The young man escaped the vicious circle of despair, boredom and degeneracy of millions of modern youth, only because he happened upon the spiritual life preserver of Nazi love of race and nation, before he sank forever into the putrid slime, putrid slime of modern spiritual syphilis. There will be many who will say that he could have been saved, perhaps even more effectively by religion. Fifty years ago, yes, but I've had years of experience seeing these kids, these lost kids on college campuses all over America. And I can assure the reader that most of these young people are far too cynical and hardened to be able to open their ears and hearts even for a moment to accept a religious approach. Start talking about religion to such hard-case cynics and you drive them further and further away, no matter how hard you try. It takes a new and shocking approach, a dramatic and powerful approach, to have any hope of making, a, making an impression on such lost, bitter kids. We have it, and it works. Millions and millions of the youth of all Western nations are sinking into various degrees of the misery and degradation of the young beat who came to our door in beard, blanket, and sandals. Other millions of good people who don't look like beatniks are lost without purpose, without confidence, without ambition, without beliefs or religion. Without respect, for, without respect for home, flag, country, parents, or anything else. Without self-control or discipline. Without morals or standards of any kind. With neither love for their own people nor hatred for their mortal enemies. Without hope and without any real desire to live in any real sense. Beat is an apt description. They have indeed almost everything beaten out of them. They have gotten disgusted with the hypocrisy, disorder, and corruption of our times and quit. In their own words, they have dropped out. In Battle for the Mind, William Sargent, a top British psychologist, shows how the communists used the principles of Soviet, Soviet psycholo psychologist Pavlov to brainwash victims. And the first thing they do is empty the minds and souls of the subject. They spiritually beat him until he quits. Once he is empty, it is a relatively easy job for the communist masters to pour back into his head whatever lies they want. 
That's how the Soviets can produce victims after a year or so in jail, who get up in court and shout that they are guilty. And they beg to be punished, as did the victims of Stalin's great purges. Our youth in various stages of beatnikism are precisely the victims of are precisely like the victims of Soviet brainwashing. They are empty or nearly empty, or any of anything positive. They are sick and disgusted with just about everything. Although they don't realise it, they are desperate to believe in something, to become a part of something bigger than they are, to be worthwhile, to have a purpose, to have something care about them enough to discipline them, and to show them something worthwhile to do in this world. But nobody does show these lost kids anything that, that they can believe in deeply. They have been made to feel they are living in a ruined, dirty, hypocritical world about to blow itself to pieces with the bomb. Many of them have been spoiled rotten. Many know nothing of constructive efforts to learn a living. They are told they are the same as blacks, and they try desperately to believe it, but it destroys them on the inside because instincts are stronger than words. Worst of all, they have been taught that mature love of anything except for themselves and pleasure is corny and square. Their family, flag, country, national heroes, race, and even God have been dragged down and ridiculed until there are no fixed stars in their heavens. Nothing to aim at, nothing but an aimless wandering far more and for more and more selfish pleasure and kicks. Unthinking animals can live from moment to moment on purely animal pleasures, pleasures and satisfactions. But man has been blessed or cursed with consciousness and the ability to imagine the future. Man forms an opinion of himself. This has given him an even greater need than the mere satisfaction of his animal needs. Man cannot live by bread alone, says the Bible, and no true words have ever been recorded. Men long for the admiration of other men and a clear conscience. Every great religion in the world sets its precepts for human behaviour, not on mere satisfaction of animal pleasures and kicks, but on the more lasting and deeply satisfying joys of outgoing activity. Activity, be, activity to be good and helpful to other people. When men concentrate only on themselves and their animal lusts, they begin to, to begin to despise themselves. They become despicable and hated by other men, and they become unhappy and hateful in turn. And each generation of Western civilization is being brought up to be more spoiled and selfish than the last. Predictably, every generation is becoming more and more unhappy. Uh, where was I? More and more unhappy. Until today, we have... Many young people from supposedly the best homes going forth into the streets to beat old men to death just for kicks, while others abandon themselves as hippies to drugs, filth, and sloth. During the Korean War, not one American prisoner of war escaped. Many, many Americans, almost half of them, cooperated with the enemy when captured. No matter how vicious the enemy in all previous wars, Americans have never failed to escape in large numbers, and have always resisted every effort by the enemy to make turncoats out of prisoners. But now, the fighting American spirit is dying. Americans have more cars, more telephones, more televisions, household appliances and luxuries. More of almost anything, everything than any other human being who has ever lived, or who, who live now. Yet never have so many led to the little inside. Never have there been so many suffering, intolerable boredom. Never have people been packed so close as in our giant cities. Yet never have people been so alone so cut off from one another. There is a vast ocean of spiritual misery drowning great numbers of our people. Many of them have lost their religion, and there is nothing to fill the black numbing void which freezes the soul of modern emancipated men. 
They desperately seek escape from this cold, hopelessness in alcohol, LSD, dope, or wild, crazy living. It is not physical lacks of hardship which physical lacks or hardship which bears down on our people and drives them unconsciously towards national and racial suicide. It is a spiritual failing, a disease of the spirit which has our people down and beaten. Our people are rotting from the inside, no matter how the outside gives the appearance of prosperity and happiness. Like a man with a diseased heart, the first America, first time America is subjected, subjected to a real crisis. Unless something changes mighty quickly, America, and all of Western civilization with us, will fold with a whimper and die. No spiritually healthy people would ever tolerate the sort of horrors catalogued in Chapter 1. Western civilization, as Spengler predicted long ago, and America in particular, are far gone down the road toward decay and death, nor is there any real resistance. On the contrary, millions have made a love cult and a religion out of worshipping their own destroyers, and worked tirelessly to hasten their national, our national and racial death. Is this a natural development? Are we, as a civilization and as a nation, dying of old age, senility and natural decay? Or is there something unnatural about this situation? And if there is something unnatural, if there is something sinister, what is it? Who is doing it? And why? Where is the spiritual syphilis coming from?